Today's program is about secularism. Hello my radio friends, I'm so glad you've joined me today for number 69 in the series Give Me the Bible. As always, I hope that these programs are helping you to understand the Word of God much better and that they're bringing you closer to our Heavenly Father who loves you very much. Today, we're looking into the subject of secularism and see one of the reasons that society is becoming less religious and, consequently, more and more secular. I want to incorporate into this talk some serious questions for which no satisfactory answers are given by those who deny the existence of God. Secularism is a widespread idea, denying the existence of God, or at least saying that human life does not depend on God. You know, there are two quite worrying verses in the Bible. These verses are worrying as they point out what people will be like before Jesus comes again. That time period, as far as I'm concerned, is not very far in the future. And some would argue that we are in that time right now. The first of these two verses is in Revelation chapter 14 and verse 7. Here, the Apostle John records the message to the world of what the first angel proclaims. Part of the message is, Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. Said another way, the message is, Worship God who is the creator. Why would such a message be necessary? It is because most people do not worship God or recognize God as the Creator. Of course, there would be no need for a message telling people to worship God as Creator if they were already doing it. Today, most people keep God at arm's length and believe that the earth, the universe and life came about by random, unguided causes, without any intelligent input or planning or direction. The popular idea is that God had nothing to do with the origins of life. The other text is found in Luke chapter 18 and verse 8. Jesus is speaking. He says, When the Son of Man comes... Will he find faith on the earth? By implications, by implication rather, he is saying that the majority of people do not believe in God 
and do not value his holy word. So these two Bible verses are telling that in the last days of earth's history, most people will not accept God's existence, and even if they do accept his existence, they will not accept that God created the heavens and the earth. They will put in place another explanation of origins, of how things came to be. And what is that other explanation? It has been called humanism. But you would probably be more aware of its more general name, evolution. We've dealt with this subject in a number of ways in previous programs. But today I want to share with you some difficult questions that make secular evolutionists squirm and for which they cannot provide any satisfactory answers. But before that, I need to point out to you that evolution is really a kind of religion. It pervades the thinking of a large number of people and is promoted in all kinds of ways. And of course, evolution, like communism, denies the existence of God. The two go hand in hand. A true communist is an evolutionist, although a true evolutionist is not necessarily a communist. I want to tell you at this point that after much study and considering whether creationism or evolution is true, I've come to the conclusion that evolution is not what many of its proponents claim. They say that it is science. It is no more science than the story of Cinderella and the fairy godmother. In fact, I believe science has taken a backward step since evolution became so widely taught and accepted. So much money has been wasted on a theory that does not stack up, and so many studies have been made and so many brilliant minds have been involved in trying to trace the untraceable and following lines of thought that are clearly futile. Evolution-based scientific study reminds me of a dog chasing its own tail, going round and round and round, expending lots of energy and getting absolutely nowhere. Do you realise it is now over 150 years since Darwin introduced the theory of evolution? Yet science is no closer to discovering the origins of life than back then. The reason is that evolution is a dead-end road. There is no light at the end of the tunnel because the tunnel doesn't go anywhere. Yet one must ask... Why are so many intelligent people caught up in promoting an impossible idea? Put simply, it is because they are not prepared to accept the existence of God. You may have noticed the way the promoters of evolution operate. After some U-Butte study or something or other, 
A press release appears. It often goes like this. Scientists on the brink of understanding origins of the universe. Or, scientists close to an understanding of how life came about. Or, particle accelerator machine gives clues of how the Big Bang began. But it is always the same. It's like holding a carrot in front of a donkey. The donkey keeps moving forward but never gets the carrot. The evolutionists are always about to get the answers but never do. That's because there are no answers and no hope within what they follow and believe. The answers are found in the Bible. God's Word. Its answers to life's big, big questions are clear and unambiguous because they come from God, the life giver. Although the theory of evolution is very widespread and popular, we must not get the idea that it is universal, that is, that everyone believes it. There are some very influential scientists who totally reject it and believe in the Bible's accounts of origins. At the beginning of today's program, I announced that I would share with you some questions for which the evolutionary community has no satisfactory, plausible answers. And here are some. Question 1. How did life originate? It's commonly taught that an accidental mixture of chemicals came about a long time ago and suddenly there was life. That explanation is about as plausible as saying the fairy godmother waved her wand and the pumpkin became a coach. Ask Dr Paul Davies. Ask Dr Andrew Knoll, Professor of Biology, at Harvard University, one of the most prestigious universities in the world. Both these men, who should know how life came about, both admit that nobody knows. A minimal, that's a simple cell, needs several hundred proteins. If every atom in the universe were an experiment with all the correct amino acids present, for every possible molecular vibration in the supposed evolutionary age of the universe, not even one average-sized protein would form. That all means that if it were possible to have all the necessary chemicals and it was arranged to do multi-billions of experiments, to be done with all those chemicals, you would not even end up with one functional protein as the first brick in the wall, so to speak, to forming a very simple cell. The evolutionists gloss over this very significant detail. In the thousands of universities around the world, there are thousands of clever and skilled biologists, none of whom 
have produced one living cell out of non-living chemicals. They haven't, they can't, and they won't. It's easy to say that chemicals collided and life began, but the reality is quite different. Life only comes from life, and life came because there was a life giver, that is, God. Question two. How did the DNA code originate? You may be aware that within each cell in any living thing, plant or animal, is DNA. DNA is now used in forensic science and humans have modified it, but they cannot originate it. It's extremely complex and contains billions of pieces of information. Of course, not only does the DNA hold the information, but it has to be understood, and there must be the means of converting that information. Consider the DNA as a recipe for making a fruitcake. Firstly, the right ingredients must be present to make the cake. Secondly, the recipe must be presented in a form and language where it can be read. Thirdly, there has to be someone who can read and understand what the recipe says. Then there is the need for some sort of mechanism to use the recipe to make the cake so to speak. And then there is the need to perform the cake-making operations in the right order. And then there's the need to actually do it, to make the cake. If one piece of information in the DNA molecule was added every year, the claimed age of the universe would be much too small to make it. DNA is so complex that it is absolutely impossible for it to have happened by chance, even if the process was continuous over billions and billions of years. Now some of you probably play the lotto. Are you more likely to win the jackpot this week than you were last week? The answer is no. The chances remain the same. Millions of years doesn't solve anything. It only makes matters worse. We'll have a little break and then we'll come back soon.
to question number three, which says, how could mutations, that is, accidental copying mistakes, create large volumes of information in the DNA of living things? It's commonly taught in evolutionary biology that the key means of bringing about change from one species to another is mutation. Mutation is where a gene, due to a copying mistake, is malformed. What is not admitted by evolutionists is that where such a mutation occurs, there is a loss of information not again. Therefore, it is impossible for a lower life form to increase its body of DNA information. It can only decrease. Because of that, a worm can never end up becoming a wombat, for that would require an increase of DNA information. Mutations are known for their mainly destructive effects, including about 1,000 human diseases, such as haemophilia. Mutations have a downward effect, not upward. One of the current champions of evolution, Richard Dawkins, was asked on a live televised interview to name just one, mind you, just one positive result of a mutation. He could not answer the question. He was speechless. The argument by evolutionists that mutations bring about an increase in genetic information and therefore simple life forms can become more complex life forms is spurious. It is not supported by reality, yet it is clung to tenaciously. I regard such teachings as intellectual dishonesty, believing in such a theory when the facts disprove that theory is so stupid. It is no better than the belief that the world is flat when the facts are that the earth is almost spherical. Now we're up to question four. Why is natural selection a principle recognised by creationists taught as evolution, as if it explains the origin of the diversity of life? Natural selection is real. Various life forms do adapt to differing circumstances, but natural selection is not evolution. Now, just to make this a little bit clear from a particular pair of dogs, that say wolves, you can end up with a whole variety of different kind of dogs. But they are still dogs. They haven't turned into cats. I saw a documentary on television about two scientists who were studying the bird life on East Island in the Pacific Ocean. Among the various birds were the wandering albatross and a much smaller seed-eating bird, but I've forgotten what it was called. The smaller bird discovered a trick 
to get an easy meal. It learned to pick at the non-dangerous end of a nesting albatross until the wound produced blood. The bird would then drink the nourishing blood. The two scientists had been on the island a long time and had caught, weighed and measured the lengths of the small birds, including the lengths of their beaks. It was during the time the scientists were both there that the small birds learned how to get the free blood meal from the nesting albatrosses. Subsequent measurements showed that the lengths of the beaks of the small birds had slightly increased. Richard Attenborough was the narrator on the documentary and he commented that this was evolution in action. As much as I respect Richard Attenborough, what he said was totally false. You see, a bird that eats seed is constantly wearing its beak down, just like the hooves of sheep and cattle are constantly wearing as their feet come in contact with hard, stony ground. Move sheep and cattle to an area where the soil is soft and stoneless, and the rate of growth of their hooves is greater than the wearing away process. Those animals then require their hooves to be trimmed from time to time, just like our fingernails do. The same thing happened with the small Easter Island birds. Their beaks increased in length due to not having to peck at seeds that had fallen on the ground. My wife and I spent some time on a station property north of Marie on the Birdsville track. It was interesting to observe the reddish-coloured rabbits scampering about in the red sandhills. Had they evolved from grey to red? No, it was a case of natural selection. Dingoes also live in this region, and one of their favourite foods is fresh rabbit. The rabbits, which already had a slightly, slightly reddish fur, were the harder ones to be seen. Consequently, the more visible grey rabbits were more easily seen by the predatory dingoes to the extent that they were eaten, leaving the more reddish rabbits. In time, the dominant colour of the rabbits was reddish. That's natural selection. It's not evolution. Another example of natural selection often misquoted as evolution, is the case of the peppered moths in England. These moths are coloured with spots of black and white and are a favourite meal for very various insectivorous birds. During the time of the Industrial Revolution in England, there were lots of factories pouring out black smoke and soot covering buildings, rocks and trees with their pollutants. It was noticed that the number of the predominantly white-peppered moths decreased. The evolutionists gladly proclaimed 
that here was another case of evolution in action. But was it? No. The predominantly darker coloured moths blended into the environment and were not so easily seen by the birds. The white ones were eaten. In time, after subsequent generations, the main colour of the peppered moths was darker than before as a response to the change in the environment, and also, of course, the birds. The evolutionists were too quick to come up with an inconclusive answer to support their unsound theory. It was natural selection, not evolution. You know, we need to be cautious of these sweeping claims made by evolutionists. They are dangerous and are based on the foundation of speculation. Now we're up to question five. How did new biochemical pathways, which involve multiple enzymes working together in sequence, originate? Now, if that sounds like gobbledygook, I'll try to explain. You may be aware that if you remove any one of the seven parts of a mouse trap, the trap becomes useless. It won't catch mice. But even more complicated than that are the structures of cells which require multiple protein enzyme components to work. Take out one of those proteins or change the order of the proteins and the cell does not function. It dies, or to put it even more precisely, it never lives. Proteins must all be there, and they must all be in the right order. The odds of getting this right are enormous. You could not even count the number if you started counting when you were born and kept counting through your whole life. You wouldn't even be close. If you lived to be a thousand years old and kept counting through that amount of time, you would still not be close. Yet evolutionists assert that these proteins, and in the right order, came about by chance. It's more plausible to believe that the fairy godmother turned the pumpkin into a coach than to accept that a simple cell would form unguided from non-living matter given the impossible odds of forming the suitable proteins and have them in the proper order. Yet with all this, secularism and the theory of evolution are thriving. Very few people admit that there had to be a designer, and a very clever and powerful designer at that. The Bible tells us about that designer. It's God. No human being has created life from non-living chemicals and it certainly did not come about on its own. The theory of evolution epitomizes what was known as the phlogiston theory. It was once believed 
that materials that burned contained a lot of a mysterious, unidentified substance called phlogiston, which was given off during the burning process and accounted for flames and heat. The mysterious substance has never been identified. It was a theoretical idea and the belief in his existence was once very widely accepted. And so it is with evolution and secularism. They are based on empty words and hollow ideas. But with God's word, it's different. It's sound. It's solid. It's believable. And the evidence shows that it's true. What will you choose to believe? Will you accept the inventions of man or will you accept God's holy word? For me, that's an easy choice. I accept the Bible. We're not finished with this subject of secularism yet. Next time we'll look at more questions the evolutionists don't like to be asked. Between now and then, I wish you joy and peace and the fortitude to make your life decisions based on the Bible.